Welcome to Season 5 of KnowledgeCast, hosted by Jack Williams. We're excited about this season's guest, and you can learn more about this new season along with our guest in previous seasons at jackwwilliams.com slash podcast. Now let's listen in to an all-new episode with Jack and this week's special guest. Well, welcome to our fifth season of Knowledge Cast. Glad that you joined us today. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. And if you're one of our regulars, thank you for coming back. Well, we're excited to have Ryan Kane with us today. Ryan is the president of the Spiro Group, uh, a management company that specializes in operating behavioral health companies and addiction treatment centers. He's the founder of the Nashville Recovery Center and is currently the executive director of Fun Recovery. Ryan also is a former president of the Hall of Fame Health Organization. Ryan has an incredible personal story that led him to impacting thousands of people and their families who are suffering through mental health uh, or addiction and all the fallout uh, that comes from that. Ryan, we're just glad to welcome you to KnowledgeCast. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Well, listen, before we get into how you got involved with all these organizations, how about just giving us a, a little about Spiro uh, Company, the, the Fund Recovery, and uh, Nashville Recovery Center. We're going to just kind of a quick overview. We're going to talk more in detail about the Nashville uh, Recovery Center in just a minute. Yeah, the Spiro Group uh, actually kind of came about by accident. We were uh, you know, personally, I've been in the uh, in the recovery world um, with my own story, and we were um, my family was trying to think about ways to give back, get more involved, make a difference, and uh, it started with uh, an intervention company that we started that that helped uh, families navigate crisis, uh, mental health crisis, or substance use use crisis, and we would actually help put people into treatment. Uh, we'd, we'd gather their loved ones and help um, have a loving discussion about um, what care looks like and uh, get these individuals into, into the appropriate level of care for their mental health condition. And that kind of spun into different mental health opportunities that we had um, around um, safe housing, for example. So um, when these families would discharge from a residential treatment center, a lot of times they didn't have a great place to go live um, before they were able to go back home. And so we ended up investing and in building uh, sober living homes for men and women. Uh, and again, one thing led to another. We ended up opening the Nashville Recovery Center as, as kind of a community place for people looking to get into recovery and, and live a full life, happy life. Um, and now this Spiro Group is really uh, more of a I would call it an investment vehicle slash operating uh, company for different behavioral health or mental health um, innovations, things that are different. You know, we we are definitely not a run of the mill, you know, open a therapy practice kind of organization. We are always looking for the next thing, the cutting edge um, technologies or services that we can offer in the mental health and addiction space. So that's that's really what Spiro Group does. Well, it's, it's quite a quite a, uh, a mantra there to go after. Um, let's let's now get into your personal story. You were active in sports in high school, then you got injured, and your life began to change. And and we have to say, not change for the good. Tell us about what happened and how that affected you. Yeah, I grew up uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, and and uh, had two loving parents. Um, 
a, a younger brother. We had a, a very tight-knit, intact family. I uh, went to a Christian high school, private high school here in town and um, was, you know, an athlete. I was a decent student. I had friends and, you know, no, none of the things that you would associate with addiction or mental health issues um, on the surface. And uh, my senior year of high school, um, I tore my ACL uh, as a basketball player and immediately had the surgery, got the pain pills. Um, and, you know, I, I can't say that I immediately jumped into the, the addiction side of things. I just knew that it felt good when I took the medicine and it changed the way I felt. And I also had a big void in my life because I'd always been an athlete. Um, I played every sport I could. Um, I can't say I was identified as an athlete that I was more than that, but it certainly was, it was probably more important than academics. Let's put it that way. Um, I, I enjoyed playing sports a lot and, and literally in the, in the snap of my finger, my career was over and I didn't expect that wasn't the plan. You know, it just, it was over. And, uh, and so I, I had a lot of free time on my hands and eventually uh, started drinking along with taking the pills and, and um, I was able to cobble it together. You know, it definitely wasn't a, a wheels come off all at the, at the beginning. It was a slow, slow, slow burn. Um, so I went to college and um, drank in college and um, used some drugs and, and, and eventually got a career after school and, and had a very good job. I got married. Uh, but the whole time, I had this kind of secret that I was drinking or taking pills on a daily basis. If you would have looked at me, you would never have known because I was, I was checking the boxes of life. You know, I was, um, had good grades in college and uh, had friends and a girlfriend and, you know, I was, I was doing everything I was supposed to do. And the way I looked at it was it's, it's a work hard, play hard. Um, <clears throat> eventually my, my career took me to Michigan and um, that's really, I think the beginning of when the addiction um, kind of took off because I was on the road quite a bit, uh, unaccounted for time and, and, you know, a big expense account and, uh, I wore it out. And, uh, and again, same thing. I would, I would be work hard, play hard. So on the road, I would work some, and then I'd make sure I played a lot when I was on the road. <laughs> and when I'd come home, I wouldn't be present because I'd be so exhausted from everything I'd done on the road. I was, I was not a good, um, partner in my marriage. I was, um, distracted and, um, felt like it was justified in a strange way because I was a provider and I was bringing in money. So I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm out here doing all this. When I come home, I just want to be alone have my, have my time. And, uh, as life would have it, we had our first child, um, and, uh, in 2006. And I thought when my wife was pregnant, that, that I would kind of get my act together you know, to, to be the kind of dad I wanted to be. And so I gave myself this, the first of many, many ultimatums of, I'm going to promise to act different. I'm going to get my drinking under control. I'm going to stop taking pills. And, and the truth is once my daughter was born, it only got worse. And, um, not only was I drinking and using, but I was, um, running around with women and just doing things that, you know, um, a healthy me would never even consider doing, but I was, um, I was full of secrets and, and I, the way I, I best describe it is I was almost like a split personality where I had kind of my addicted personality doing 
God knows what. And then I had my, uh, my family life and, and, and true Ryan, who I didn't even really know. Um, and that led to, um, you know, more and more use and, and still no real consequences. But after my, my son was born a couple of years later, um, I'd had some, some stress with, with some work things and, um, really just, um, leaned fully into my addiction and turned away from my family. And I remember one day in particular that, that kind of, you know, we're, we're well past a decade since this, since this happened, but I was in a, um, in this, it was a Saturday morning. It was a beautiful day outside. And, um, uh, it was either my son or daughter had a soccer game. And, uh, I, I just couldn't understand how guys that were my age were getting up in the morning and going to a soccer field to watch kids play soccer and be with, be happy with that and, and be social. And I was miserable. And I, I remember telling my wife that my knee hurt and I needed to take a pain pill and I couldn't go to the, to the soccer game. And I went, we had a, a, a TV room and it was dark in there. And I, I went upstairs and I took a, a handful of pain pills and I poured a big giant glass of vodka. And I literally sat there in the dark for two hours wondering how I got here and why am I the way I am? And why can't I go out there with, you know, my two beautiful children and my wife and watch this, this game and enjoy the weather and the community. I preferred the, the loneliness and the sadness and all the feelings that I had of, of, um, darkness, um, sitting there alone. And I just couldn't understand why, um, flash forward to, to a couple of years later, I ended up, um, having a full crash and, and I got arrested for, um, uh, a drug charge with cocaine. And, um, it was the first time that anyone in my circle ever knew that there was those kind of drugs involved. And, you know, I, at the point, uh, I was in my life, they all thought it was alcohol and maybe some pills here and there, but they had no idea about cocaine and certainly not women. And this arrest was like the perfect storm. So all my secrets were exposed immediately. Everything, all one time, yeah. everything I've been hiding came out and it was, it was such a scary time for me. Uh, but I remember the moment and I'd never been in trouble with the law ever. And I remember the moment I got arrested I let out an exhale, like I'd been holding it in for, for years. Like, finally, this is over, you know, finally it's done. Um, and I navigated through that, but unfortunately, um, you know, my wife filed for divorce. I had been to rehab and, you know, was trying to kind of get my life back together. And, um, I had a, had a really pivotal moment there after I got out of treatment and, and, um, my wife and kids left and I was kicked out of my house. So I didn't have my, I didn't have a home. I didn't have access to my kids and I didn't have my, my wife. And I had this choice to make, um, do I, do I drink over this or do I try something different? And, and the only thing I could tell myself was how many times I promised and lied to myself or broken that promise that I was going to stop and change my ways. And here was an opportunity for me to pick up a bottle and change the way I felt because I was so sad about my life circumstance, or I could try something different because my solution was the reason I got here. <laughs> right. right. The only thing I knew how to do was to, was to drink over something. And that's exactly how I got there. So that one night I, I didn't do it. 
And um, I was able to navigate the divorce and I was able to eventually regain the trust of my, my family and, and um, you know, got custody of my kids again. And, and uh, we have a great relationship um, now, my kids and I and my ex-wife, we, we um, were able to reconcile, but it didn't happen quickly. It was definitely a, a long, long, slow process built on decades of distrust and lies and, and manipulation and drug use and drinking. So. So it came down to the one night, the, the choice of the regular solution that caused the problem or something different. Correct. Yep. Well, before we get into it, that's that's an incredible story. And, and unfortunately, it's one that's this widespread, which is kind of leads me into the next question. Before we talk about the, the Nashville Recovery Center, I, I want to get your thoughts on the opioid uh, addiction in general and how it's added so much complexity to the world of addiction. Yeah, you know, the opioid crisis um, really, I think, started with um, just people overprescribing and, and lack of, of oversight on, on what doctors were writing and, and how many pills people were getting and the threshold it took to get those pills. Um, there, when I tore my ACL to the time I got sober in, in 2012, uh, I could walk into any doctor's office with my x-rays and walk out of there with pain pills. And there wasn't a lot of kind of cross-referencing where if I went to a doctor in Nashville, I could go to another doctor in Brentwood on the same day and the doctors wouldn't even know that I went to each other. So I could double, triple up on, on my medication. So that was pretty common practice. And, and uh, the government really tightened down on that um, in the last decade or so. Um, the problem is, is that before they crack down on it, they've created a lot of drug addicts. And I don't mean homeless under the bridge drug addicts. I mean, housewives and businessmen and people who were prescribed these things. And now all of a sudden you, you made access very difficult. And I'm not saying they overcorrected, but they stopped it. And without really providing a solution for people who have already been impacted by the uh, addictive nature of the drug. So uh, now you, you've got um, uh, a bunch of people who need the medicine, need the medication. They're physically dependent on the opioids. And there's one really easy way to get them now, which is heroin. Because it's the same effect. It's made of the same stuff as, as you know, hydrocodone or oxycodone. And it's a lot cheaper and, and more readily available. So you literally have, you know, private school kids and housewives that are taking heroin uh, because they can't get the the authentic pill from their physician anymore like they used to. Um, couple that with the fact that, you know, China is manufacturing fentanyl, uh, synthetic fentanyl, and they're pressing it into pills made to look like an oxycodone or a hydrocodone. Um, it's, it's being uh, shipped into the United States via Mexico. And, you know, people are accidentally overdosing because fentanyl is so much more potent. It's a thousand times more potent than um, what they're expe expecting to be taking. So you're having uh, an incredible increase in fatal overdoses that are accidental uh, because of this, this uh, fentanyl crisis. So it's, it's something that's, you know, we continue to be behind the eight ball. Um, you know, we, we finally catch up to what the problem is and then we, we take some action and then it reciprocates into the drug addicts finding another way and 
Um, people that will prey on drug addicts by doing things like pressing fentanyl into uh, pills that are killing people. So, um, it, and it's happening daily. And, and literally, um, unless you know it came from a pharmacy and came from a doctor and came from that bottle, you cannot take a pain pill today without it possibly being uh, a fentanyl pill and, and dying. Well, you know, it's interesting. You you talked about that the profile of the attic is really different than what most people uh, think about. I mean, we think about the, the person on the street and you said, you know, today that's not the case that, they're, you know, they're, they're walking addicts that none of us would would know that have, you know, similar stories or similar issues as as you have. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Nashville Recovery Center. What what services do you provide there and how many patients have you uh, had that have taken advantage of those services? Well, we uh the Spear Group started the National Recovery Center uh, about four and a half, five years ago. And the concept behind it was creating a community center first. So we wanted a place where people in recovery, um, people that were trying to walk a different path, people that were trying to avoid drugs and alcohol, uh, a place where they could gather that they didn't feel the pressure of drinking or being around anything like that. So we, like going to a bar, for example, if you wanted to go watch uh, the Super Bowl, uh, you know, for someone in early recovery, it'd be a challenge to socialize because all of the, all the people that go watch the Super Bowl are going to have cocktails and sure. you know, going into a sports bar, there's a lot of drinking happening. So we wanted to create an environment that was welcoming to anyone. And, and so we ended up buying this giant warehouse and, and filling it up with flat screen TVs and pool tables and a coffee shop and a bookstore uh, as a gathering place for people that wanted to stay sober and, and live a different lifestyle. And we ended up having around 20 to 30 different 12 step meetings there a week. So the, the center was open to anyone. It was free. Um and at some point we realized that as good as this was, we couldn't keep it open because we were going to go broke. <laughs> so we, we, uh, we ended up working with a therapy practice and uh, providing therapy there. And uh, eventually it spun into uh, running a full on addiction treatment program. Uh, we, we built um, a couple sober living homes on the campus for men. And then we bought a few other homes off campus for women so we had housing options, we had treatment available during the day, and then we had kind of a big community where we would host, um, you know, a Halloween party, a New Year's Eve party. Uh, uh, we'd had birthday parties there, gender reveals, and, and all kinds of things that were just fun, and, and concerts every Friday night with, uh, with wonderful musical acts that wanted to just come play a, a, a concert for people trying to be sober. And um, two years ago, an organization out of Texas uh, purchased uh, the National Recovery Center from our team, and uh, they've been running uh, running that business uh, since. How many folks would you guess have been through that service? Um, we had around forty eight beds. So over the last four years, I would I would say it's in the thousands. Um, I, I can say this that with with the uh, events and the meetings that we had there in 2019, we had about 25,000 people come through there for some, for something, whether it's a 12 step meeting or a concert or, a, or treatment or therapy, we had about 25,000 people uh, come through that, that place. And then obviously um, COVID um, stopped a lot of that uh, 
uh, for about a year. So it, it's building back up, but the, the, it's it's something that for the community, I think is really important because we were able to marry uh, two different populations, recovery populations together. We had people that were, you know, literally five, 10 days sober, hanging out with people their age that might have five or 10 years sober. And it was great for them, for the newcomer to see these people that looked like them, that had jobs, that had relationships, that like this was possible. Recovery is possible and your life can get better. And so it, it was a, it was something, I don't, it's not scientific. It's more anecdotal, but it was just, you, you would see miracle after miracle where a newcomer would latch on to uh, someone that has five, 10 years of sobriety and they become friends and, and you'd have a mentor mentee relationship. And, and um, it was something that brought a lot of people together. It was, it was neat. Well, they were able to see a, a real live future uh, right there in front of them with someone that had just been where, where they had. Well, you know, as a result of uh, not only your personal recovery, but the impact that you've had on the thousands of people that your organization served, you've been able to kind of reconnect with your parents after having been alienated through those years of addiction, which is, we all know that uh, that family alienation is one of the side effects that comes with addiction. Tell us how that process came about of kind of reconnecting with your folks. Well, I think um, it started with just having to be honest with them for the first time. Um, you know, I probably hadn't been honest with my parents since I was about 16 years old. And uh because I had so many secrets and, you know, I lived, I lived a life that would be best described as having silos where what was happening in one silo had no idea what was happening in another silo. And I had a lot of silos. I had a church group. I had my parents and my, my family. I had my friends that I drank with. I had my friends that I used drugs with and I kept everybody separate. Um, and my parents were always supportive, but, but always, you know, concerned like a parent would be, but they didn't have the language of the words to understand what the heck was happening. They just saw this physical change in me, this change in my attitude, this change in my motivation, and they couldn't put their finger on what the heck was happening. And the last thing they thought was drugs or alcohol um, because I did such a good job hiding it. And, and so all of this came as a huge surprise when it happened. Um, and immediately I think they wanted to take the blame for it as a parent. Like, how did we sure. miss this? What did we do wrong? You know, we, we tried, we were still married. We never, you know, abused you. You know, you went to the best schools. You never wanted for anything. We did family vacations. Like what did we do wrong? And the truth is, is they didn't do anything wrong. It, it was my reaction to life. And it was me looking at, drugs and alcohol as a solution, not as a problem. And I think that's where my parents and I reconciled. We, we spent a lot of time talking about that, that, that the misconception is that alcohol was my problem. And the truth is life was my problem and alcohol was my solution. Right. And right. For, for them to hear it that way, I think um, kind of took the burden off of them. And um one of the things that's been really fun about this is I've been able to work closely with my dad along the way with some of these projects. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think he really knew how much of an impact we could have together, um, being open and honest about what happened to me uh, as a way to share it with other people 
to empower them to go through it as well and to give them the courage to be honest for the first time, maybe ever about what they're going through and the the feelings that you get helping as an addict, helping another addict. It's, a, it's an amazing feeling that you want to keep coming back for more. And uh, I think my, my dad, that, that's, your, that's your new, that's your new addiction, right? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, kind of. And, uh, and, and, but, but it's happened to my parents, you know, they, they see people in a different light, you know, they don't look at it as a character defect. They look at it as this is a sick person. How can we help? And, and I think that that only comes that, that lack of being judgmental comes from having experienced it themselves from a parent perspective. And, uh, you can look at people with with softer eyes and certainly more humility and compassion about what another family might be going through. And instead of judging them, it's we're reaching out with a helping hand saying, what can we do? We've been there. We've done that. We'd love to help. Well, you know, I can relate to that for, for a long time. Uh, I was one of those that was very judgmental that it, you know, profiled these people and, and said, you know, you're just not strong enough until I saw it happening to, to too many people that I knew and began to realize what really was going on. You know, if any, you've given some great tips um, and advice already, but if anyone is listening today that is struggling personally with some area of addiction or they have a, a family member or a close friend, what, what advice would you share with them? Uh, my advice would be um, to have an honest conversation with someone. It does not have to be a therapist. It does not have to be a, a drug counselor. Um, doesn't have to be a priest. Um, it could be a dear friend. It could be a, a spouse, colleague at work. Um, but think through who you know in your life um, who's safe. And maybe just once give someone a glimpse into what's happening with you. And I think... Um, being courageous enough to have that conversation, um, it gives you instant relief. It, it, it's like we're carrying around a heavy backpack full of secrets and you can just set it down for a minute and, and get it off your chest. And it's amazing how much relief you get from that. And, and who knows what's next? You know, I mean, maybe you want to go see a therapist or maybe you feel like it is time to go, um, you know, to rehab or something to, to look and see if there's a problem. But I think if you feel like, um, there's something on your heart that you need to share, then I would encourage you to share it. Just, just one time, have that courage and, and, and do it. Well, that's great advice. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in recent years about, uh, the mental well-being of, of athletes and you're involved in a couple things now to start addressing that issue in your wellness, you and your hope desk. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we uh, for the last couple of years, I've I've worked closely with the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and we've run a a call line uh, for the Hall of Famers and their families uh, should they have any kind of mental health or substance use issues um, within their family unit, and we do that out of Nashville. It's it's a hope desk is what we call it, and the hope desk is. Um, is a place that, again, I just described it to you. If, if someone's listening and they feel like something's off in their life around mental health, whether it's anxiety, depression, addiction, you name it, uh, a lot of people don't take action because of stigma. And so what the Hope Desk is, is just, we don't care. <laughs> we have no agenda. We just want to help you. So 
call us and, and let us know what's going on. We have 6,500 plus providers around the country that we've connected with. Uh, these would include therapy practices, uh, treatment centers, hospitals. Um, so we can help connect you to what you may need. Um, we, we took that and spun it into um, a relationship with uh, Louisiana State University, LSU, and their L Club, which is their Student Athlete Alumni Association. And we do the same thing for those uh, alumni at LSU. And the number one reason people don't ask for help is stigma. The number two reason is they don't know how they're going to pay for it. And because mental health is, is expensive and a lot of times insurance doesn't cover some of the basics that you need, like traditional health insurance might for, you know, uh, an appendectomy or a knee replacement or uh, right. you've been going to see your primary care doctor. Mental health works a little differently. So the second reason people struggle is the financial side of it. And the third is, frankly, they don't know what to do. They may be listening right now saying, I have anxiety. I think it's anxiety, but I don't know what it is. And who do I talk to? Like, I, I don't even know. Do I go to my primary care? Do I go to some, you know, dot com and try to do a telehealth thing? And so all the hope desk is, is a, is a phone number for people to call just to ask all the quote, stupid questions that aren't stupid there. We all have them when it comes to mental health. And unfortunately we as a country do a very poor job of kind of explaining the best way to get help in the mental health space. I would actually, I was just reading this morning about the nine eight eight online, which is, I guess, something that they're trying to do similar, not to the extent that you are, but where people wouldn't have to dial 911, you know, when they were having one of these issues, they would get somebody who would be more equipped to handle them, not to the to the sophistication that you're set up. Well, tell us about Wellness U, too. So Wellness U is a, is a very uh, neat project. One of the companies that Spiro Group is involved with that provides uh, a mental wellness tool on the more prevention side. So typically when we talk about mental health, we're talking about, okay, someone's calling, like for example, 988. The 988, 988 number is for when someone's in a crisis or feeling suicidal. Wellness U is the other side of the spectrum. It is acknowledging that all of us, every single one of us at some point has doubts, has questions, has mental health related issues. Now, some of them get dealt with early, but some of them, if they're not dealt with, get all the way to where you may need to call 988. So what Wellness U does is it empowers people to take their own snapshot of their mental wellness through a series of questions on an app. Um, it's in partnership with, for example, a, a sports team. So let's take, a, let's say the football team at LSU uh, may have access to the Wellness U app. Every player would would provide, um, would answer their own questions and, and have recommended next steps for their own mental wellness. Those may be breathing exercises, meditation, uh, telehealth therapy appointments, but it's all private to that individual. The coaches get a blinded aggregate score of the mental wellness of their team. And it's not just how's your team doing? Oh, we're fine. We're mentally tough. It's not that there's about 26 or 30 categories that we look at. What well, you know, boundaries, sleep. Um, do they feel heard by the coaches? Are they stressed? Um, you know, are, are they having any um, issues with drinking or drugs? And, um, 
that coaches can get a very good snapshot of their mental wellness. And then the coaches are given instructions on how to improve those scores, how to have the language to talk to their team. Uh, we do that over a series of about a year. We have a couple different touch points to see changes in the, in the mental wellness of the team. And um, so at the end of the day, what we're hoping to do is have conversations around mental health way earlier than, uh, you know, you've had a DUI. Now let's talk about your drinking problem. You know, we, we can maybe catch it on the front end because, um, because you're doing some self-assessment along the way. So wellness you to me is a, uh, is one of the first attempts that I've seen of, of really trying to prevent mental health issues from becoming a, an acute uh, problem. Well, that's another perfect example of being proactive and prevention on the front end, uh, rather than reactive and, and trying to uh, heal. Uh, that's that's going to be an incredible resource for for people and for teams. Uh, last question: um, We always try to incorporate some kind of leadership advice on our, our programs when we can. And you've made a statement that said, "Leaders don't create followers; leaders create leaders." Explain what you mean by that. Uh, I think what I mean by that is, is the concept of servant leadership that, um, you know, I never ask anyone on, on any of my teams to do something I haven't or wouldn't do on my own, um, that, that we lead by example. And my job is, is as a leader is to cultivate um, a culture that supports growth for individuals. And, and we all have different talents and we just have to figure out what those are. And I think that um, my job is is to make my employees or the people I interact with the best versions of themselves. And sometimes that may be someone leaving to go start their own company. Sometimes it might be someone who's really good at accounting, which I hate. Uh, and so my idea is to say, guys, my job here is to make you the best version of you. And then I want you to pass the torch. I want you to do the same thing. And that's how we make a difference. It's one-on-one it's, it's -on -one interactions that really, when you add them up, it can really have an impact on the world. Well, Ryan, it, uh, man, to say the least, it's been great being able to visit with you today and, and the work that you're doing, it's just absolutely incredible. And, and I wanna wish you continued success because you really are truly making a difference in the lives of all of those people and their families that, um, that you and your multiple organizations and services help and provide. And thank you for being a, a capital pro, uh, proactive uh, company in terms of prevention and giving these folks hope on the front end uh, rather than trying to um, reclaim them uh, after they've gone down that road. Um, and I know you work on that side as well, but thanks so much for, for taking the initiative that you have and also being as open as you have been with, you know, with your own situation. I think people, when people are transparent, um, other people become transparent. And uh, so you have set the tone for that. So thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jack. Really appreciate it. That wraps up another Knowledge Cast, and we really appreciate you being with us. And we hope to have you back next week as we speak with another interesting guest. And until then, make sure that you're being a positive influence in the lives of others. <laughs>